0: G'day guys, Tom Craig here. Welcome to my podcast, The Help Side. Now, The Help Side is a term in hockey that refers to the other side of the pitch, away from where the ball is and the action happens. And in the same way, the aim of this podcast is to give you, the listener, an insight into the other side of elite hockey players to hear about their highs, their lows, and what makes them tick. We'll also hear about the journey they went through from having fun in the backyard to playing out their dreams on the world stage. So whether you're a player, a coach, a coach, an umpire, a parent, a fan, or just a fan of sport in general, I'm hoping this podcast gives you a window into the world of elite athletes and even better, encourages you to get more involved in our great sport. You can hear the chat we had last week and others you may have missed by searching The Help Side on any major podcast platform. And if you want, you can like and subscribe our page to make sure that you're up to date with the most recent episodes. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get to this week's guest, For fans of Hockey Down Under, Ashley Morrison could reasonably be considered the voice of hockey. With 32 years in media across 37 countries, Ashley is the world's premier hockey broadcaster with a level of insight and attention to detail that is second to none. He's a commentator, a journalist, a writer, an award-winning documentary maker, and as anyone that knows him will tell you, a fierce ambassador for sports like hockey that maybe don't get the recognition in the mainstream media that they deserve. Indeed, his podcast, Not The Footy Show, covers over 78 sports, most of which typically lack the coverage in popular forums. Ashley is a man with a passion for both the history and the human side of sport, and in this podcast, we talk about his journey as a sports journalist, a path that has taken him to all corners of the globe, and we tackle some of the big issues facing hockey as a sport. From TV coverage in the Pro League, to the domestic and international calendar, through to grassroots hockey and the current state of the game, Ashley holds considered and compelling opinions that he shares with us over the next hour or so. You'll find Ash to be, above all, your quintessential sports fan, and it's fitting that he's made his career expertly sharing the very thing he loves most about sport, the people and their stories. If, like me, you care about the future of our sport, you're going to enjoy this one. This is the help side of Ashley Morrison. Here we go. I'm here with Ashley Morrison, the voice of hockey, you could say, in Australia. Ashley, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to join you.
0: No problem. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm, I'm excited. I think last time I spoke to you on a, on a similar situation, I was just about to debut and I was sitting in my house in Sydney and you were interviewing me. So the tables have turned.
1: It's not very often I'm, I'm the interviewee, but uh, so it's new ground for me too.
0: <laughs> well, I've never interviewed journalists, so let's see how we go. Um, to start off, you're not just a journalist, you're a sports commentator, a journalist, as we mentioned, a documentary maker, a writer. And you've got your own podcast, which is what I featured on a long, long time ago, called Not The Footy Show. What else do you do? Is there anything you can't do? You're obviously a massive advocate of sport, but, but where do you get your, your pleasure from with all that stuff?
1: Oh, look, I, I just, as I say, I, I played a lot of sport when I was younger. I've always kind of loved it, had ambitions to make it as a cricketer, but soon found at a certain stage that I wasn't good enough to make it to the top level. Um, and then. Obviously followed a career path, which was interesting. I worked in newspapers initially in the UK, then came to Australia, worked in magazines, radio, and then, you know, progressed into television. So it's kind of the media thing had always been there, but it was always secondary to my full-time job. Or once I, well, certainly at some stages it was secondary when it was radio, I'd work on that the weekends and have a full-time job during the week. But yeah, sport's always been something I love. Um, I like the stories behind it, the unpredictability of it. And, you know, that in a game, a story will will unfold in front of your eyes. And I think I just love stories. I love sports. So the two just kind of mold together and that's the enjoyment I get from it.
0: Yeah, sure. I can see there's a lot of cricket memorabilia around the study where, where, where you're sitting for this interview. What, what was the transition into hockey luck? I mean, did you, did you consider pursuing cricket from a journalism perspective? Will you still do that? Or
1: Oh, look, cricket's really hard. I mean, I, I've only ever, I think, been involved in commentating cricket twice, and that was at the 2003 Cricket World Cup in South Africa. I did a couple of games there. Um, but it's, yeah, I would love to get into cricket because mm. that was what I really because it was my passion as a child. Um, but hockey was funny because I, well, I, I wouldn't say I was a bad, I was a dirty player. I don't think I was a good player, but I sort of, um, what the school I first was at, when we, uh, when I left to go to the next school, I said, oh, thank you. I don't have to play hockey anymore. I can play football. And then they went, but the school you're going to is like famous for its hockey. And I was like, oh, hell. I didn't realize. That. So I ended up playing in, And it was funny, I had uh, two coaches who you talk about people that have an influence on your life. I had, you know, one coach who just knew how to get the best out of me and that he would rile me up in the changes before the game. I'd go out there, have a hell of a game. And soon I sussed out what he was doing. But I was enjoying it so much by then that it was. And so I actually carried on playing after I left school. But then, you know, work got in the way. And so I stopped playing. As for how I got into it with the commentary, through not the footy show, funnily enough, because the whole premise of the show was about covering all the sports that mm. were not AFL, because there's some great stories, great athletes, and they don't get the publicity. So we were a show that was gonna be all about other sports, give them their five minutes every week, or 10 minutes was usually what we sort of used to allocate, and make it, you know, the other sports, the heroes. And suddenly a friend of mine up in uh, Asia called Jason Dacey rang me goes, can you commentate hockey? And I went, yeah, I think I can. And it was actually for the World Series hockey, which you know came before the Hockey India League. And so they, uh, Neo Sports, contacted me and said, can you do this? And so I went up there and had an absolute ball. Really enjoyed it. Worked with Michael Absalom, Godfrey Phillips, Dubai and Sen, and Shes Hak from uh, Singapore. And, you know, we did that tournament and it, I think there were a lot of things in that that were really good and really innovative. Mm. Um, but that was really the, how it started. I'd, yeah, I'd actually sure. done a hockey ruse game with Mark Hager here mm. in Perth. We did it on the radio when China came down and we uh, did two of the test matches. So that was probably the first time I commentated the hockey. And then you know, obviously the World Series in India.
0: Yeah, right. That's actually reasonably recently. And I guess India is a, is a happening place for a lot of hockey. I was I was interested in how you get into hockey because it's not really a, a mainstream sport, I guess. But when it comes to commentating hockey, uh, you kind of have to trail a blaze a trail of your own because um, you know it's not it's not super well covered. Um, are there any role models you kind of looked up to, or how did you model your your hockey commentary?
1: I don't, I don't think I kind of modelled it on anybody, to be mm. honest. Um, I, I've sort of found that when you do various sports, so just to sort of move away from the hockey, I did the Kabaddi World Cup, and you've Mm. been in India, and you've seen the Kabaddi. And that was really difficult, and when we had a sort of trial run, when the teams were having their warm ups, I was a disaster, and the the sort of director was like, oh my God, what have I done, I've hired this guy. And I said, now look, just let me go and sit in the stands, and in my head, just go through it on my own. Mm. And I said, tomorrow when we come back, I'll be fine. So it's again, it's I think working out how you're gonna do it, the pace and whatever. So I actually owe a lot, to be honest, to a guy called Narendra Pal Singh in Star Sports in India, because I'd done the first Hockey India League and then went up and he'd taken over pretty much running the Hockey India League And he'd, uh, from a broadcast point of view. And he sort of said, look, we want to make it more exciting. We, we want to get that energy. It's a fast-paced game. He absolutely loves his hockey. And so we had about three or four days, I think, in a workshop and, you know, he was sort of saying, can you make it more exciting? So I actually changed the way I was doing it. If you listen to the stuff sort of pre that time and uh, tried to give them exactly what they were asking for. And it, the feedback I got was that this was really good. People liked it. And to be honest, I felt it sounded better when I was actually doing it. So I owe everything really to him. If he wasn't a role model, but he was, <laughs> I suppose, a guide or a mentor that said, can you do this? This is what we want.
0: Sure, sure. And you're, you're very well researched. I think that's something that um, comes across well in your commentary. I mean, people who watch us often say, like, I'm glad that Ash is commentating because, um, you know, he's fantastic and he knows the players and he knows a lot about the game. But obviously, there was a long period there where you're away for the game. Hockey wasn't front and centre for you. And it's not like with the top players and with all the players you've got to commentate, there's a, there's a wealth of information that is easily accessible like there are with other sports. How are you so well researched?
1: I spend a lot of time on that. I mean, my, my basic principle on a lot of things is for every hour you're on air, try and do two, year, two hours prep. Sure. But then beyond that, I do a lot more than that. So, again, you know, I'll watch all the tournaments. I'll keep notes if something happens or a certain player, something, event happens with them. And I've kind of now built up files on all the players that are currently playing. Mm. Some of them are very hard to find information. When you do something like the Sultan of Johor Cup, when they're an (laughs) under-21 side, trying to find information on some of these guys is is really really difficult. But uh, yeah, I I just think it. To me, it's very important. As as I said, you know, I had ambitions to play professional cricket, didn't Mm. make it, but I therefore admire all you guys. And the dedication you have, and I know what it takes to get to the top, so it 's kind of my tribute to you guys is paying respect to you is the least I could do is find out about you and uh, promote you as an at, away from the sport as well and say you know look Tom Craig is not just a, a hockey player and you know, he 's studying law and he 's a smart guy." You know? <laughs>
0: No, we certainly appreciate it. But the thing as well about hockey is that you've got to cover um, across both the men's and the women's games at times. You can't just focus in on the men's game or the the women's game. And often you have to do that on the same day. Not only that, but you might have to do five, six games going back and forth between men's and women's, men's and women's, which is just mental. Can you walk us through a little bit about um, how hectic that is and, and how you make sure that you're prepared for something like that?
1: I think the most I've ever done is four in a day, which um, that is hard. I think that the biggest thing that it's hard is on your voice. Mm. And Martin Tyler, you know, the famous football commentator, I remember seeing him interviewed many years ago and he said, you just have to learn to pace yourself. So Mm. he goes, the first game, you cannot get too excited in it. And you can build during the day that your excitement level so that you look after your voice. So that was actually a really good bit of advice. So if anyone watches, they'll probably find I'm not quite as uh, high tempo in the first game as I may be in the last game. But that's more about looking after your voice. As for sort of the research, yes, it's a lot of work. And, and what I tend to do is I have a very strict routine, just as you players would. And I think sometimes having played sport and having had that discipline when you're preparing for a match as an athlete, I've sort of brought that into my broadcast world. So. Everyone that knows me will know i get up in the morning, I'll have my breakfast, then I go back to my room and I will then for the next two, three hours be doing the notes for the games on that day and I follow the same routine every single tournament, wherever I am in the world. So that, And that's just, I then am confident that I've got everything that I need for those games and I've done it the way I've done it every single time. Uh, it, you could say I'm a bit OCD with it, but... <laughs> I think it's just, to me, it's that preparation and doing it the way you've always done it so you're confident that if something goes wrong, you know you've got it, you know? Sure,
0: sure. And with hockey, we're not the most well-resourced sport and sometimes that means uh, you're doing it all by yourself, um, which I imagine is difficult as well. Obviously, with other sports, there's a whole raft of, there's a big commentating team, you know, there's a discussion panel, there's a sideline commentator, there's an expert commentator, all these sorts of things. And you've kind of got to roll all of that into one how do you focus on that? And and do you wish you had a little bit more help?
1: Oh, look, it would be really good. And I mean, I, th- I think the sad thing is hockey hasn't been a great sport at keeping records. Mm. Um, Patrick Rowley, who is an old journalist from the UK, he apparently has fantastic records going back. Well, he attended the 1948 Olympic Games. So I don't know how whether they go back that far, but certainly they're going back to the 50s. And he has offered to sell them to various people because he's going hang on this is my life's work he's now I presume in his 70s or 80s I'm not sure I might be doing him a disservice there but he has fantastic records and occasionally if there's something come up I'll ask him Um, there's also a gentleman in India whose name's just slipped my mind BG Joshi who again has fantastic records and if I'm not sure about a stat or something I might email them and say hey, look, is this true? Have I got this right? And they're really good in sharing that information with that. But I can tell you a funny story in that. I was doing one tournament. I won't tell you where it was. And uh, they they decided to employ statisticians to do all the stuff. And the guy gave me this um, little two, I suppose, four pages on the tournament where we were at. And I looked at it the first and I just threw it straight in the bin. And he was really upset. And he goes, what are you doing? You haven't even looked at it. I said, well, I'm sorry, but if on the front page you haven't even got the top score in the tournament correct, I said, I'm not going to read anything else because I said, you've lost my trust in you and the job you're doing. I said, I'd rather trust my own statistics that I do on every tournament. And I said, you know, so I'm sorry. (laughs) And he was really upset. But but again, it's like you're going on air. You've got to trust that the information you're being given is correct. Mm. Um, And sometimes it isn't. Mm. And therefore, in, in that case, there was no way I was going to trust what he'd done if he couldn't even get... Top score is a pretty easy thing to get right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very true. We're going, to, uh, we're going to go back to something that you said before about, um, the, I guess, the why of your journalism. And um, I think anyone who's read your work or seen your work will, will have picked up that you love the story of sport. I mean, you mentioned it before, but you're a storyteller naturally. Um, what is it specifically about the storytelling of sport that has, has kept you in the, in the journalism game for so long?
1: That's a really hard question. I mean, I think you know, growing up, I read books on sport, and you can probably see behind me. I've got you know a library of fifteen hundred books on various sports. So I really enjoy hearing the story behind the athlete and things that they've overcome, etc. So I, I just think it's those sort of things, and whether you can relate to them or whether they inspire you, and that there are some amazing people out there that. And you look at it, for example, the documentary I just made called Mark Our Place, which was, it's about three rugby players who all played for the same club, all went on and played internationally for Ireland, and then all went on to be awarded the Victoria Cross. Now, the documentary there we were exploring, was it the schooling that they had, so their upbringing that made them into three men that were heroic enough to be awarded the Victoria Cross and be top athletes, or was it, you know, rugby union, or was it, Wanderers rugby club or football club as it's called in Dublin because that's pretty strange and you sort of think for something unique like that to happen what was it was or was it just a freakish situation so I I just find things like that really fascinating and they sort of spark my mind and I get thinking about things and and I just love that so
0: Mm, that's fantastic and there's a there's a couple of um, books hockey specific books that you've written there's one that's just been released I believe um, which is about the Wesley and South Perth Hockey Club um, in Perth, which is a history of the club. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. That, that proved to be actually a much bigger task than I'd anticipated. I was asked to do it by uh, one of their life members, Kay Lee, who was a former president of the club. And uh, it, the reason it proved difficult was it's three clubs that merged into one. So you had South Perth Women's Hockey Club, South Perth Men's Hockey Club, and then Old Wesley Hockey Club. And, Some of them had better record keeping than others. (laughs) And uh, so I've been sort of crawling through old newspapers, old hockey bulletins, trying to find information. And yeah, it it was just really difficult to find some of the earlier stuff. The amazing thing with that, and and the part that I've probably enjoyed the most, is I've done 75 interviews for the book. The youngest person was 23, and there were two people that were 94. And sitting with those two 94 year olds and hearing their memories of playing in the late forties, early fifties was just incredible.
0: Mm, mm, that is awesome. That is awesome. And there's another book that uh, you actually gifted me um, just before the Rio campaign. It's called Australia's hockey grail. Um, it's about Australia, the Australian men's hockey team and and their Olympic journeys. Um, it is the Olympic season. Now it's an extended Olympic season, but it definitely, we are in the Olympic season. And the thing that struck me about this book is that there's a lot of, you spoke about interviews before and how many interviews you did for the Wesleyan Perth. but there are a lot and a lot and a lot of interviews in this one. And I imagine there was a whole bunch of work that went into this. Um, what is it that attracted you about the Australian men's hockey story for the Olympics firstly, and and how did you get all these people to talk to you?
1: Yeah, that was, again, it was, it was uh, uh, the Hockey India League. I was up there and we happened to be, um in Ranchi, and i'd I'd done an interview for not the footy show with barry dancer um and we were leading up to i think the olympics then and he made a comment that you've got to be lucky to win a gold medal and i thought lucky you know sure you need an element but I, i just kind of it was a comment that it really stuck with me and i sort of let it ride and then happened to be talking to the german player florian Fuchs, and um he said, oh, you know, in London, he goes, we were really lucky, we didn't deserve to win the gold medal, but luck was on our side and that's why we won it. So I mm-hmm. thought, oh, hang on a sec, everyone's saying that there's this luck element. And and then when you analysed it and you looked at it, then yes, you do, you need the odd decision to go your way, you need, you know, no injuries, you need the run of the ball occasionally, you know, when it hits a post to go in rather than come back out. And so then when I looked at it, I thought, yeah, that's interesting. But then there was another conversation in amongst those um, with Mark Knowles, you know, the former captain of the Kookaburras. And it was while we were at the Hockey India League, I think it was the Australian Olympic Committee had come out and said, we are ex- going to win X amount of medals at the Rio Olympic Games. And uh, these are the sports that we'll be winning gold in. These are the sports we'll be winning silver in. And hockey was thrown in as winning a gold medal. Mm. And I said to Mark, that, can you believe that they've come out and said this? And he goes, ah, you know, you know, Mark, he goes, ah, yeah, we're used to it. They do it every four years. He goes, it's just, you know, water off a duck's back. And I thought, but where has this expectation come from? You know, why is it that every four years, the media and everybody jumps on the bandwagon with the kookaburras and goes, they're going to win us gold. And it puts immense pressure on all of you. And because suddenly when nobody's really given you any focus for three years, suddenly everyone's on your back going, oh, we're interested in you now. And also we expect you to win gold. And I just thought, when did this start? And, and that was really the, the two things, to look at when this expectation started and maybe why Australia's only won the one gold medal.
0: Mm. Is that what you attribute to, you reckon?
1: I think. Oh, look, I think having you know, written the book and spoken to so many people with it, mm. I think there's a lot of contributing factors. I think as everybody says, when you go from it, and you would know this, when you go to a hockey tournament, everybody's there, usually there's a couple of teams in the same hotel, and you're focused on that one sport, and you can do, you know that the bus is coming and it's going to take you straight to the stadium, when you go to the Olympics or whatever, as everybody says, it's completely different, there's so many more distractions, there's so many more athletes, and it takes longer to get to the stadium, because you've got to go through all security checks, etc, so suddenly your sort of pre-preparation or your day experience is very, very different to what it would be at a normal. And certainly I think some athletes get overawed with it all. Mm. And uh, there's a great story in the book with Rob Hammond, how in uh, um, Athens, you know, he said to Barry Dunst, he goes, oh, the hundred meters finals on, do you mind if I go and play, Uh, go and watch it? And, Mm. uh, you know, he said it was probably about an hour to the stadium and an hour back and, For an event that's going to last 10 seconds (laughs) Uh, and barry dancer said you can go but he goes i just want you to remember why you're here Mm. and he said rob said you know this was a huge thing because he said i suddenly remembered that i wasn't there to watch events i was there to play to perform to win a gold for australia and i think that again was brilliant psychology from Barry Dancer because mm. he said, "Yeah, you can go, but remember why you're here." And I'm mm. sure he would have made a mental note if Rob Hammond had gone. <laughs> um, whereas, of course, he chose not to go, and Australia won the gold. Whether that was the reason they won the gold, who knows? But you know, I just think there's different pressures, and so you, you, and it's how players approach it. And I've spoken to other athletes from other sports and. Uh, I spoke to one of the gymnasts. So I won't embarrass them by saying who it was. And what they said when they got to the Olympics, they could not believe the food hall there. Mm. And they were, they suddenly put on, I think it was two kilos within the first couple of days. From mm. that point on, the coach had to go to the meals with them to make sure that they didn't <laughs> eat more than they were meant to.
0: Yeah, sure. Now you've, um, you focused on a lot of teams in this book. I just want to stay on it for a little bit. Um, you probably know a lot more about the different teams uh, that have, have gone to the Olympics, these Australian Man's hockey teams than anyone else in the world, I would say. Um, is there a tangible culture difference? Could you, could you get a feel of the culture of each team as it, as it rode up to the Olympics and how each team sort of felt? And um, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on how, how the team culture has changed over the years and, and are there any um, teams that really stood out to you?
1: Ah, that's a, again, it's really difficult. I'd, I don't know if I do know more than anyone else. I think the likes of Rick Charlesworth and, and Terry Walsh, their memories having been there and as coaches and players are far greater than mine and they've been in amongst it. So I would never profess that knowledge. <laughs> but yeah, I think the early guys, the interesting thing was if you looked at the early teams, there seemed to be a real camaraderie there that they all were mates. They all had a bit of a laugh. But it was very serious when you went on the pitch. Mm. Uh, And I think that now, obviously, with, you know, we call the sport professional. But as as you will vouch, you don't get paid a lot of money (laughs) to play it. So calling it professional is stretching it a little bit. But I think now, though, that the environment that you're in is so much more professional, that maybe you don't have that sort of downtime or are allowed the sort of releases that they were allowed in those earlier days. Mm. And I just think it's kind of evolved. And if you look and maybe it needs to have a little bit more of that, maybe you need that sort of pressure valve released so that you can then go out and actually enjoy it when you get on the pitch. I I don't know, but I, I think there was definitely, if you saw Probably in the 90s to the 2000s, the definite shift was that to do with, you know, the AIS opening up in the late 80s or, or sort of, you know, in the in the 80s. Very much, it would probably had a massive impact in the, the way people looked towards the game, the way they prepared for the game, became more professional. Sports scientists were involved, sports psychologists. So I think that was probably the time when you saw a major shift.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, that's interesting, and obviously, you, well, you mentioned the AIS, in which started, I think, in 1984. Is that right?
1: In in Perth, I'm trying to remember the date. Yeah, I mean, it was it was after obviously the Montreal Olympics when mm-hmm. you know Australia didn't win a single gold medal, mm-hmm. and uh, so then it was decided. And and the thing I find quite ironic is that it was modelled on the East German program, which of course we now know was uh, full of drug taking and uh, all sorts of things that shouldn't have happened in sport.
0: Just on that. So uh, it's, a, it's a controversial topic um, here in Australia. I mean, we're very lucky that we can have a, a centralised program. Obviously, the tyranny of distance is something that um, a lot of countries don't have to deal with. I mean, the European clubs, they all have very strong club structures and, and they're able to travel for training camps and these sorts of things. But Australia is a very different story. Um, I'd be interested in, in hearing your opinion on uh, on whether the centralized program is, is a good thing for the sport in Australia.
1: Again, I, I don't know if it's fair for me to, to say, because I've not been a part of it. So mm. I don't really know. My As a, as a fan of sport, I mm. look at it and I think, why change something that's actually working? Mm. Like it's been incredibly successful if you look at the hockey programs. So why change it? I think like everything, and I did on my podcast an interview with Ron Smith, who was heading up the AIS football program. And of course, now the likes of Viduca and that are saying they want to bring that back. Um, I think you have to look at it and say, things have changed. You know, the world has evolved. Social media has changed things. You know, you are very different, say, to a Jamie Dwyer when he moved to, a, to Perth. And so the, the, the things that Jamie would have wanted then and what you guys want now are very different. Mm. Um, So I think it has to evolve a little bit. I think there maybe has to be a bit more give and take. One of the things that I've noticed talking to players, both male and female, is maybe Hockey Australia have got to find a way where they can have a program where you guys can go home more than you do. Mm. And let's be honest, some people need that familial trip home more than other players. Some are quite happy to be the other side of the country, and not having mum telling them they're going to make the bed every day. you know. <laughs> um, but, but I think, so, you know, if you look at all my, this is my view, if you look mm. at all the travel that you guys do, and the amount of, of money you're paying for that, surely you could go to an airline and say, look, we're going to be spending X amount of money with you. Can we have 10 tickets across Australia mm. um, to help our players go home an extra time once a year? now yeah. or we have a discounted fare that you know maybe you're paying 50 percent instead of the full fare now i would think having worked in the airline industry that could be achieved when you're sitting down putting together a package for your travel for a whole year or for two years or whatever and i i do think that needs to be taken into account or taken into consideration mm. and i think you've got to almost look at it on a person-to-person basis as i say because some people really struggle being away from home whereas others you know, it's, it doesn't really affect them.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we had uh, Rachel Lynch on the show last week. Um, you wouldn't have seen the episode, but uh, she mentioned about often uh, players move to Perth very young, um, you know, especially in the women's program. Sometimes it's 16, 17, you're, you're uprooting from your family and moving over to Perth. Um, and in the men's, it's typically a little bit later, probably maybe 18, 19, 20 sort of thing. But it is a, an early move. Um, do you think that's the, the best model or do you think there should be a little bit more time back home in, in the eastern states?
1: Again, again, I think you have to take that on a case by case basis. I don't mm. think you can go, we're not taking anybody at 16. I think you've got to look at each individual and are they mm. ready for it? Do they want to do it? Is there the option for them to go home if they're not happy? You know, you, you've got to take all those things. I think there's almost like the duty of care mm. uh, in loco parente. Certainly if, you know, they are, 16 then hockey australia or the ais have to take it's no longer the ais is it now so it's hockey australia that Mm. run the performance program so you know they have to take that responsibility for the welfare of those young players and to me that's you know something that they need to take very seriously i I think you have to look again is do we want and, and if you go back to what the ais was when it was set up It was the development players originally, so the top players stayed in their states, played for their clubs in Brisbane, in New South Wales, etc., and they came together for a camp before they went off to the tournament. And it was the young players that they were looking to get to that level Mm. that came over. So it was almost like the the AIS was a finishing school for those players who'd been identified with talent, and then they were allowed to go back. So I think there needs to be as well maybe an onus on some of the clubs, and that's the interesting thing having you know, written the book on Wasps was Mm. some of the, a lot of the international players that had come across to Perth had said how welcome they'd felt at Wasps and how the club had really made them feel that they had a support network there. Now, speaking to some of those players who'd played at other clubs, they said, I didn't get that at Mm. X club. But, you know, when I got to Wasp, it was unbelievable. And I was just embraced and I always felt, there were people there to support me. And I mean, you would know moving interstate, it's, it's tough. You know, mm. you want to, you need people around you that you can ring up and say, hey, look, I'm feeling a bit down, do you want a coffee? Or you just want company or, you know, all of those things. And, and you need something away from that high performance group that it may still be a hockey group, but it's not that high performance where you're so focused. You need something where you can go and have a bit of a laugh and it, it's a different atmosphere.
0: Yeah sure. So for for context the way it works in in the hockey Australia and hockey WA uh partnership I guess is that um often there's a there's a raft of players coming over from the eastern states moved to Perth to to take up the the scholarship and there's a draft system whereby um, players get fed into different clubs and it's a it's yeah it is a draft isn't it it's a it's a snake system yeah. or whatever. Um but obviously the difficulty is is that they're not there to play hockey for the club per se they're there to play for Australia but it does mean that they are um, they have to play for the club when it's possible now it's an interesting situation in Perth I mean um, you would know a fair bit about it having researched in wasp and wasps and you're you're heavily involved in the Perth um, club hockey scene but it is difficult in that clubs from uh, players from other clubs effectively come over and um, take the positions of people who who like juniors in in those clubs and um, and also there's always going to be a spot open for them. And on the flip side, there's no, uh, I guess, people often talk about the financial incentive to play for um, the Perth club. And I know there's a, there's a school of thought where, um, you know, some people don't necessarily attach themselves to the club in Perth because they're never, never there. And it's a very, very interesting scenario. And I've probably made a complete mess of that trying to describe the club system in Perth. But I was wondering if you could shed some light on that situation and, and your take on it perhaps in a much more articulate manner than I just did because you're the journalist. I
1: don't know, <laughs> I don't know if I can do that, but yeah, it's interesting because the point you make is true. there are some players who sort of want that financial support to when they're playing for their club and go, if I'm going to give up the time to go to training with you guys as well, and then play at the weekend on top of what I'm doing with the Australian setup, then I want reimbursement, especially because, and let's be fair, some, most of you live fairly close to the hockey stadium so that you can get the training at 6am and don't have to get out of bed at 4am to drive there. Um, so some of the clubs are a little bit further away. And so suddenly getting there is a, is a bit of a task, especially for training, if, they, if you know depending on the, the distance that's travelled. The other interesting thing that speaking to a lot of players have said that what they would like is, is the uh, Hockey Australia programme to allow them to play more games for their clubs locally, that they feel that that would be a bit of a release, it would give them a chance where, and it was Trent Mitten who actually said to me how, you know, he goes, a training all week trying to get past Matthew Swan Mm -hmm. is tiring. He goes, whereas you think at the weekend, he goes, it would be quite nice to where you'd have a little bit more space and you could try some of the things that you've been coached by, you know, Colin Batch and Anthony Potter and Rob Hammond during the week to, to then actually put them into practice in a match at the weekend. And I think there's a lot in my view, and and I look at my own youth when you were growing, when I was growing up was, you know, we had, um, minor counties players were playing for the club and you aspired to be like those. So even as a junior, I think you wanted to be like that. And you also would stay and watch them because certainly if you had any ambition, you wanted to see what they did, if they played in your position or whatever, you looked at how they did things so that you might be able to learn something. So I think in my opinion, having, players like yourselves or involved with the Australian program playing more games for the club, I think it would benefit the club system and I think it would benefit the juniors coming through because they've suddenly got more role models, they get to see you closer and I think it would in turn then help when you play an international here because those same people will have a stronger connection with you and will then want to go down and watch you playing and representing their club when you play for Australia.
0: Mm, That's a very interesting point. We talk a lot about that, I imagine. Um, obviously, there's clubs on the East Coast that need to be considered as well. And, and as we said, there's a, it's, it's difficult in that Australia is so big. How can you balance them both? It's, it's not that easy. Certainly, uh, the hockey one is a, is, a, is a step in the right direction, I imagine. Now, I'm going to briefly interrupt here to introduce a feature of the show. We'll call it our Hero of Hockey segment. We know that community sport flourishes on the back of hard-working volunteers who give up their time and effort simply for the love of it. And we want to give you, the listener, the opportunity to contact us and tell us who deserves to be our hero of hockey for the week. Tell us who they are, what club they're from, and what they've done for the sport, and we'll give them and your club a shout out. So get in touch via our socials, and your nominee could be chosen for the next episode. This week, we at the help side would like to add our voice to the chorus of those saying thank you to the six wonderful people who are this week awarded Hockey Australia Life Membership. Life Membership can be considered the highest off-field honour that can be awarded, and its bestowal signifies a lifetime of voluntary commitment and service to hockey. So, a big congratulations and a very warm thank you to Sue Briggs, Bob Claxton, Lynn Hill, Carol Sheridan, Robert Taylor, and Colin Wandsborough. You're all legends, and we appreciate all you do. Now, it's back to Ashley. He's about to share with us his thoughts on the state of our game from a local level right up to how we're comparing internationally. But I want to talk about hockey in Australia in general. Um, you're in a good position to, to, to see that and see um, if we're tracking in the right direction. Actually, we're going to start by going more broadly. Let's go international. There's been the induction of the FIH Pro League. Um, you've been in hockey for a long time. You've commentated a lot of internationals. Do you think hockey is heading in the right direction?
1: Uh, at the moment, the finances say it probably isn't. Mm. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of issues, personally. Um, I think that this as well, this COVID-19, I think you know we're going to come out and there's, it's going to be a very different landscape. And I therefore think we need to have the right people sitting around a table looking at how we're going to come out of this and how we're going to make the sport not only, have, not only grow, but have a strong foundation. I think the key thing we need to make sure as a sport is hockey needs to cement that foundation and make it so strong. And we heard the FIH Congress say that they were going to put in place a rigid calendar. Well, what's happened to that international calendar? I mean, it is, it's a shambles in my opinion, even for me as a commentator trying to plan, you go, well, nothing's in the same place. Mm. And it, it's re- I think they've really messed it up. So to me, You need to get all of the national competitions need to put in their dates. You then need to have, and and I would actually do away with the confederations, but that's a story for another (laughs) day because I think it's a tier of management that we don't actually need. Um, But I think then you need to look at the regions uh, and say, well, okay, when are your tournaments? So when is the Sultan Aslan Shah Cup? When do you want the Pan American Cup? You know, all of these, so that again, you fill all of those in and then you, and to me, this is it. You then build your international tournaments around those because those are the core competitions that are then feeding up to the international. I don't think it should be done the other way around. Mm. I think, you know, we're putting international tournaments and then saying to all of the various um, national associations, you've got to fit in with us. And to me, we're doing it the wrong way around because players come up through those national associations to play internationally. And therefore the international program should be fitting around those. Now there are going to be, there's going to have to be a little bit of give and take with both, but I do think that that's something that needs to be really looked at carefully. Mm. um, Because I think the pro league was, it's a great tournament. I mean, Mm. the hockey has been great this year. I think there were too many teams were looking at the Olympics Mm. and were playing structures that they were just trying things or trying combinations. So the level of, of, Uh, play that we saw last year to me was a little bit below that Mm -hmm. Uh, I would I don't know if it's feasible Mm -hmm. to be honest I think trying to have this global tournament and all the travel that there is and the fact you've changed it the second year the format of the competition not a good sign I I would actually quite like to see for example a pro league yes but you have the Europeans play Mm -hmm. maybe the whole of the Americas play so you know you get your Chile you get your Argentina, your Uruguay, you know, and all of those countries playing with America. And then the Europeans play and then Asia plays. And let's throw Oceania into Asia as well. And then the top, you could say the top four teams from each of those pools, or if Europe really feel that, you know, they've got the best teams, then mm. they can maybe have an extra spot or whatever. And then you come together for one tournament in one place and that could be rotated. Mm. to find out who is the best team in the world. Because <laughs> I do that's... think it's a little bit exclusive at the moment, mm. um, you know, the way we've got just the top nine and we're forgetting about the rest. And just as I'm saying that uh, to me, for hockey to really survive, we've got to pull the standard of those teams outside of the top 10 up. Yeah. Uh, so that it, the games that you have are harder when you play against those. And if you look at football's done that really well in the last... 20 years and I actually pulled this up I'm just going to give you an example so you've got mm. in the world rankings for FIFA Senegal at 20 at the moment Peru 21 Chile are at 19 you've got Germany sitting at 15 the Netherlands at 14 and Italy at 30 so that tells you there are three really strong football nations I mean Germany and Italy apart from Brazil have won more world cups than anybody else mm. and yet they're not in the top 10 anymore so that mm. what that shows you is that the rest of the world have caught up with them and I think we're forming too much of an exclusive band at the top and not giving those other nations the chance to come up.
0: Sure. I mean, there's a, there's a few points on that. The formerly, there was the, um, it wasn't the pro league. It was the world, world league, I guess. And there were hockey, there, world, it was, league, yeah. hockey world league. It was a tiered system. There were, that was kind of, it's, it seems like that was kind of what you were saying. It was, uh, you had to qualify through the first few levels. And, and if you did, then you could play with the quote unquote, you know, big guns at, in the top 10. Yeah. Um, is that something something similar? They obviously did away with that in favour of this pro league, which was about bringing the top teams against each other more, which from our perspective is a great thing because, I mean, we've played um, Belgium, Germany, Holland more times in the last year than we, than we would have had in, in the previous four, yeah. I guess. So that's good. Um, but I do understand. I, I, I like what you're saying about bringing that, that bottom level up. However, one point would be in the Oceania Cup, for example, you know, like... Some games we play, we play Samoa, we play Fiji, um, Vanuatu, PNG, these sorts of things, and it's like 30, 30 nil sort of thing. So um, is the difference too great to, to really have that same level as what's been achieved with football? I,
1: th- I think when you look at that, yes. There's, there's, you have the same problem when you look at, uh, with the exception of Rugby Union, pretty much most sports with Oceania. And I think what we need to do is that needs to, if Oceania is genuinely going to try and come up in the sport, then you've got to throw a lot of money at it. Uh, I don't think any sport, be it football or hockey, are prepared to do that. So to me, the only thing you would do is they would have, say, a playoff tournament and their top team would come through. Or they may choose to do, as we've seen with Iran in, in the indoor situation, where mm. Iran was going, we're going to struggle in 11 a side then why don't we focus on getting the indoor side of things right? And to me, there's nothing wrong with that. that mm. That's a, a legitimate part of the game. And Iran have done a fantastic job and are now, you know, a shining light for a lot of other nations that if you can't get up there with your 11 aside and you're not going to be able to put teams in place. But, but the other thing that I see linked to that is, that, and we could go on forever as you said, yeah, yeah. I think the, the turf pitches is a big problem mm. because that's holding the game back. So I would actually like to see the sport look at saying, okay, we're going to have some tournaments on grass now.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: allow some of these nations, if they don't have a turf pitch, by all means, have tournaments on grass. And you know, even Australia could put a team in on grass and see how they go against some of these nations. And I think that would be quite an interesting dynamic. I'd, I'd sort of leave your fives, I think, because, again, there's a, it's a new format, it's a new cost, And I don't think the sport can afford it at the moment. I think we need to consolidate what we've got and use what we currently have. So there's turf pitches. But again, if you're going to put a turf pitch into, say, Guatemala, they got one a few years ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. Now you've got to put in place a a competition.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: it's pointless having a pitch if you don't have a league and people using it. So if you look at what um, David Sweetman did, the CEO of Scottish Hockey, And I take my hat off to him. I mean, he was really smart and said, you know, he had to grow the game in Scotland in order to get more funding to be able to sort of help the game along. And he said, we had coaches because we'd qualified coaches and we'd done coaching courses, but we didn't have enough clubs. So he went out, spoke to people who wanted to set up a club and then helped them put the infrastructure in place so that they would have more clubs. And so I think that's something that I would like to see, say, Hockey Australia, FIH or or various national associations do is help put in place, help create clubs Mm. and then help create league competition Mm. so that then those competitions will, as I said before, feed into a national team and suddenly your talent pool will have grown and you will be able to start developing.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think with hockey, um, obviously the battle we're constantly fighting is one of resources. I mean, hockey is not something where, Um, I mean, if you have a stick and a ball, you can, you can play anywhere, but it's not the same in soccer in that you can just spring up a hockey pitch in, you know, in a, in a dust bowl. It's, um, in order to, to play club hockey, you really do need the infrastructure. So that's a, that's a very interesting point. I just want to go back to that resources piece and, um, what you mentioned about pro league and that it's not feasible. Um, if you had, if, if FIH and all the clubs were, I mean, the international federations were, um you know, if they were resource rich, if they had unlimited resources, do you think that the, the pro league is a feasible competition? I mean, the, the one-off games versus typically hockey has been a tournament based thing where, you know, we play eight games uh, in, in a couple of weeks. Do you think the one-off matches is the way forward?
1: Look, I, I, I mean, I liked it last year. I thought it was really good. My, when it was all in discussion and we were talking about that, I, my view was to actually, if teams were coming all that way, it seemed that, heck of a long way to go to play one game Mm. Uh, and my thought at the time was that they should play three games Mm -hmm. and the idea being that say for example if you know you're playing Belgium uh, Belgium win the first game you win the second and then obviously there's a bonus point for who wins the rubber Mm. so and then if for example you've won the first two games well you've won the rubber there but then what you could do to make the last game interesting again is if you clean sweep a team you get two bonus points on the league yeah, right. table. Mm. So to me, that just made it more reasonable for you guys to travel, to actually have more than one game. And, and I, when I did actually sit down with somebody and we worked out how you could actually do that, for mm. example, if you went to Europe, so you could play sort of Great Britain over three days and then head over and have sort of a couple of days rest. And then you could play three games, say against Belgium or Germany or whatever. And we sat down and we worked out that it could be done it would take a bit of work to work out the schedule, mm. but it could have been done. So that was one of the things I think, but the, the, the bit that I worry about most of all is, um, you know, I, I think we know that this year with the TV, they did it remotely from Sweden with the broadcast. I don't think that worked. Mm. And I've had arguments with various TV stations that I work for who are all heading towards this remote commentary thing. Hockey's too fast in my opinion. And yeah. one of those TV directors actually Email me as soon as it started and said, you're absolutely right, it doesn't work. Uh, I still hold that view and that's not because I wasn't involved in it. Mm. Um, I just think that it's too fast a to game and there's too much movement out of shot for you to be able to be doing it remotely in it because you can't see what's going on outside of your screen. The other thing that I think the Pro League needs desperately, and if you look at why, and in my opinion, the Hockey India League in the end fell over, it wasn't marketed. And if you don't spend money on marketing this, promoting it, and there's too much reliance on the TV stations and the broadcasters, they're going, well, they've bought the rights, they'll promote it. Yeah, they'll promote it, but they're not going to spend the money to get people through the gates to promote it. And I think the one thing the sport fails, in my opinion, is the best asset it has are the players and the coaches and the people involved in it. Uh, I, in, I've covered you know, cricket, football, rugby, The hockey players worldwide are the nicest people I've ever, in any sport I've ever had to deal with. And I do not think we utilize those people well enough to promote the game. And I think Mm -hmm. if we did, you would see a real change and a real turnaround because most hockey players are articulate. Uh, They also are incredibly modest. They're dedicated. They've got all of the attributes that if I had children, I would want them to have. (laughs)
0: <laughs> is there a is there a recipe for that do you think
1: i just i think you you know it could be done i think you know you you need to obviously the issue you then come into is is, is player image rights etc mm. and and whether you guys you know had managers or whatever then it could get complicated but if it was set up properly where you know there was say a profit share for the players and and you had a players union then i think yes it's very much doable and i think Talking to most of the players, you want the game to grow. You, know? mm. you want to see it succeed. And most of the players I speak to want to do that. So I think, yes, I think most of the players would be on board if them giving up some of their time to promote the sport and make it more appealing. I think most of them would do it.
0: Yeah, okay. That's a very interesting point. So so somewhat, I guess, leveraging the players and, and using them as a resource. They're an underutilized resource. Is that the, that's the gist?
1: Yeah. And I think sometimes I think sadly we do things the way other sports have done it. And some of the content that is put out is a bit dull. Mm. And and I just think there's so much more that could be done with a little bit of imagination. And if you look at, and I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I know Yap Stockman works in the digital, you know, the former Dutch goalkeeper. I think Maritz First and Florian Fuchs both work in marketing. So you've got Mm. players that have been involved at the highest level, who are involved in that marketing space. And again, Mm. it's like, why not get them involved? Why not use that expertise from the guys who've been there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I want to stay on the topic of the, of the game and let's talk about production. Um, Now you spoke about the game is too fast. And I, I definitely agree. I think um, the thing about hockey is that often the best opportunities come straight after one team has had an opportunity, you know, like the amount of times that we're watching code, we've got the TV footage and we want to see what's happening, you know, in this counterattack opportunity, which almost certainly will have come off a missed opportunity at the other end. What does it take to to do the production well? I mean, how, how do you how do you do that? How do you stop missing footage?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's to be honest, again, in my opinion, it, you have to have directors that know the sport or producers mm-hmm. that know the sport. And when the sport has had that, and I've worked with people, they don't make those mistakes and they don't miss goals or they don't miss they know when to put the replays in. Mm. Um, And and I've worked with some really, really good people. And I've worked with some people who don't know the sport. And I've worked with one person who didn't give a damn about sport. And uh, I actually had a bit of a row with them after (laughs) after one particular tournament, because they just didn't care. They were there for the money and uh, that was it. And it it showed in the production, in my opinion, that they Mm. just, I mean, I think they missed three goals in the tournament. So yeah. that sort of is <laughs> what yeah. they were like. Yeah. But I think, I think again, it comes down to, to me, you know, you've got to, again, the FIH or whoever's in charge have got to make a decision. This is the best director. I and mean, if you look cricket, for example, fly the best directors to test matches around the world. The same mm. guys are doing, you know, they're going all around the world doing it. So we had, for example, Indian directors came down and they did the, cricket world cup in australia and new zealand so Mm. if you're doing that with cricket hockey if it wants to put out the best product has to invest in that and making sure that they get the best directors doing that work
0: yeah i mean to tie back to your other point about uh utilizing the players more it's not often we get consulted and i mean we probably watch more games than anyone and uh i've I've never been consulted about whether, whether it's produced well or or not well or or anything like that. And I'm not sure if any players have, if they have, then let us know. But um, that's a, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: I've heard a lot of the coaches have said, you know, that they get frustrated because hockey is pretty much filmed the same way as you would film a football match, soccer Mm. match. And they're going, "We would like to see more camera work from behind the goal. Mm. And uh, the champions trophy in China, the women's, I know that Astro Arena in Malaysia were looking to do that, but then the wrong camera turned up at the venue, so they couldn't actually do it. But that shows you, I mean, uh, John Ninaba, who's an Australian who's in charge of Astro Arena, he is very much aware and will sit and talk to the hockey people and say, well, what do you want? How can we improve it? What can we do? I mean, and they've had, you know, they put a, a camera in the goal, crossbar of the goal, and one Sultan Aslan Shah, mm. which was fantastic. They were actually the first people to have umpire camera you know mm. uh the players at the time it were the um, umpires at the time it was too heavy but i thought that was actually really good because it showed you then the a- angle that the umpire saw the offense or could not see it because number three was in his way or whatever mm. Mm. Uh, you also saw the pressure that an umpire was put on with players running towards him going you know short <laughs> corner short corner or, you know referral mm. I, I i really liked that innovation i mean one of the things i think in I've had this conversation with several people. I think the women's game could be actually filmed differently. Now, This might sound really crazy, but it is a little bit slower than the men's game. So I think you could actually spend more time getting closer to the action to see some of the skills than you necessarily can do in the men's game. Mm. And I just think that if you had a director that knew what he was doing, you could possibly look at filming it differently or just doing it. But everyone says, Oh, but that's too hard. But I think, you know, it could really lift the level of the, or the exposure of the women's game. If just a little bit of time was spent on that, because I think you've got the time to film it differently.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think, um, with hockey in general, I mean, we're the athletes are primarily fans first. And I think there is a little bit of disappointment in there in, I guess the recordings in general, I think, um, where we want people to come out and, and watch us play because we know that it comes across so much better life than, than what it does. Um, and that's definitely a space, for, a space for work. There, I want to talk about Aslan Shah. I mean, anyone who's heard Aslan Shah um, has definitely heard your voice. You're definitely the voice of Aslan Shah. Um, it's a fantastic tournament held in Malaysia. I want to know, what is it? So you obviously like going because you're there every single year. <laughs> what is it about um, Malaysia and Aslan Shah that, that keeps bringing you back? Ah,
1: oh, because they keep asking me. <laughs> they keep asking me, I wouldn't be there. No, look, I, I was very lucky, and I think it's a great tournament. I, I I like it very much because, you know, it's got the history behind it. It's been going for over 25 years or 25 mm. tournaments. It was biannual. Um, and I just think the the, the teams now and the standards have gone up. I mean, there was a time where a few teams were sending development teams there and, you know, looking to just blood players. And you're still seeing that. I mean, I think you made your debut there, didn't you?
0: Or, uh it was one of my earlier tournaments, yeah. But Daniel Beale, yeah, a lot I of us, a lot of us, the debuted there.
1: Hockey and then that, didn't you?
0: No, that was Ben actually. So Ben, Ben. Uh, anyway, it was uh, it was I debuted um, a Perth game, Perth game. But Aslan Shar is yeah. often used as a as a debut tournament. Yeah, yeah you're right. So,
1: so a lot of you know younger players are given that chance, three or four of them at a time. Mm. So again, it's a good tournament for you, for the coaches to see whether you guys are up to it or not. Mm. And it's also a good time to give you game time um, because, again, if you, if you talk to a lot of the players, they say you don't feel you belong until you have play sort of 20 to 30 international games. You suddenly then realise, actually, I can play at this level. Mm. So, look, I just think it's, it's a good atmosphere. It's a great venue. The crowds turn out in their numbers. Uh, the storms we could do without in some years. <laughs> Apart from that, you know, it's just a great tournament with a lot of history and the Malaysians love it.
0: Yeah, for sure. On that, do you have a favorite commentating location?
1: Oh. <laughs> no, I don't think I do, to be honest. I'm, I'm happy mm. to do it anywhere. And I've, I've done it in some pretty strange places over the years. I think one of the strangest was in the Solomon Islands. I did the Socceroos versus the Solomon Islands um, in 2001. And we were told we had to get to the stadium about three hours before the game. And The hotel was only like half a K away. And we were like, why? And then when we got down there, you realize that it must be nearly everyone in the Solomon Islands was there. Every tree was full. There was a hill opposite the ground, completely packed. Couldn't see a blade of grass. Hmm. And I was literally on top of this tin stand uh, with a plastic table, plastic chair and an umbrella. (laughs) And that was it. It was just just a really memorable moment. But uh, yeah, it was brilliant.
0: That's fantastic. Do you have a favorite game you've ever broadcasted? I mean, you've gone to some amazing places and you've, you've watched a lot of games. Is there one that stands out in particular?
1: It's, it's funny because I, and you said you were going to ask me this. So I actually <laughs> got my thinking cap on a little bit. I think there's a, I actually got it down to three games, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, and one actually involved your brother, Ben, in that he was captain of the, uh, under-21s at the Sultan and Johor Cup. Mm-hmm. But it didn't actually involve him in the game because it was the final in 2014, India versus Great Britain. And India won with uh, 45 seconds on the clock. Harman Preet swept home a penalty corner. But that was just a really good game because both teams, although they neither wanted to lose, they were so desperate they weren't going to make mistakes. But it was still a very attacking game. Mm. And I just thought it was a sensational advert for the game. I think one of my other games would have been the Hockey India League final in 2015, Ranchi Rays versus J.P. Punjab Warriors, uh, where J.P. Punjab Warriors, you know, took the lead. Uh, Kieran Govers scored first for them. And then uh, Stanley Minns got a goal, I think, for Ranchi. And then Chris Sorello, the big dog, stepped up, took <laughs> the lead again for J.P. Punjab Warriors. But within a minute, just as you were saying there, Barry Middleton came back and got an equaliser for Ranchi and then it went to a shootout and Tyler Lovell was the hero mm. uh, for Ranchi and they won the title. And the other one that, that was fantastic was the Hockey World League, which we just talked about, the bronze medal match between India and the Netherlands. Mm. Uh, that was in 2015 in Raipur. And again, it was an incredible game because it was 2-1 at the end of the third quarter and finished 5 all and uh, it was just goals galore. And mm. I was working with Cedric D'Souza, the former Indian coach, and I, I thought he was gonna have a heart attack. <laughs> so I mean, India got the last two goals to force the shootout, And then of course, uh, Rapinda Powell won it for them in the shootout.
0: Yeah, incredible. So those
1: would be probably three standout games for me that I really, really enjoyed. In fact, two of them I actually asked for copies of after we'd done them. So.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. So many games like that in our sport. I have a question about HIL, just because I'm always asked this. Is HIL coming back?
1: I don't know. I mean, I I would really like it to come back. There was talk that they were going to bring it back as a fives tournament. And um, I, I, I believe that the franchises, because I think the model they were looking at was it was going to be fives men, fives women. And the franchise owners were going, well, that's the same as if we played 11-a-side, we're going to need the same amount of people. Mm. And I believe that one of the issues as well was the TV stations. I know the star sports were not interested in the five-a-side game. or That's what I've been told anyway mm. by somebody in the organisation. So, look, I, I would love it to come out. I thought it was a really good tournament. Um, and I, I think it, it actually helped Indian hockey incredibly. Mm. And I think, again, I think there was more that could have been done with that. Uh, in terms of, you know, you, you have players from all around the world playing. And people used to contact me saying, oh, you know, I want a Ranchi Ray shirt. How can I get one? Yeah. And they were in London or they might have been, you know, in Australia. And I think there were things that could have been done, especially when you think, you know, Hockey Australia had that memora- memorandum of understanding. They could have shol- sold, rather, on their website, shirts from the various franchises to fans in Australia with Kieran Gover's name on with Tyler mm. Lovell's name. Mm. Simon or to Rob Hammond, whoever, you know, Mm. and there's another revenue stream, but at the same time, it's promoting the league. And I just think there were missed opportunities there.
0: Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was an awesome experience. And I think everyone wants it to come back, but as to whether it will remains to be seen, I'll usually finish the podcast with a couple of quick questions. Now I haven't, I haven't interviewed a journalist before or a commentator. So this is a journalist edition and um, accordingly, they're probably going to be a little bit longer, We'll start you off with an easy one though. The best player, this can be an individual performance or, or whatever, but the best player you've seen. In hockey? In, in hockey.
1: Ah, oh, Look, it's it's very hard because what's the, who's the best player? I mean, you, you can have players that uh, do a lot of work, but they may not be the flashiest or do the skills. Um, I, I think Mark Knowles is a leader. I was really impressed with his mm-hmm. leadership. I just thought he had a presence. Uh, he kept pretty calm. He was very clever with the umpires in that when the opposition used to have a referral, he would walk across and you could hear it on the microphone. he go, while you're looking at that, can you look at this? So I think his leadership was fantastic because he obviously put it in the umpires' mind that there might have been something else. Uh, you can't go past Turn De Noyer and, and Jamie Dwyer, obviously. Mm. Um, they were phenomenal players and you, you don't win the accolades that they have without that uh, you know, I, I've always liked, I had, a, I grew up, and one of, one of the hockey coaches we mentioned at the beginning mm. who sort of made me fall in love with the game was a Pakistani. And uh, so I always have enjoyed the stick skills and just the flair with which the Indians and the Pakistanis play. And Shaquille Abassi was one that I just loved every moment he was on the ball mm. uh, just because of what he could do with a stick. But then if you look, Again, we were again talking before we started this, Agustin Mazzilli. Again, his close skills are phenomenal. And again, he's one of those players that when he gets the ball, you're on the edge of your seat. So I don't think there's any one, but there are mm. some that I just admire what they can do.
0: Good answer. Last question. This is a toughie. We've spoken a lot. Well, we've spoken at length about what needs to happen within the game, but um, there's a big wide world out there of people who don't know about hockey, who don't um, who don't watch hockey, who we think in in our sport would fall in love with hockey if they if they watched it but what do you think is needed in our game in order to expand the audience
1: look something i, I feel very strongly there's a book i've got here um, that was written in i think 1965 and there was the australian and i'm trying to think of his uh i think it was colin humer who was an umpire anyway and he said the biggest problem with the sport this is in the 60s mm. is the rules are too complicated and we don't market our sport Mm. But we've touched on the marketing to me and I've spoken to the last three CEOs of the FIH and said, this is my personal view. And Mm. as a commentator and talking to people, I think we need to sit down as Rugby Union did. Rugby Union went to Stellenbosch and they got past players, current players, coaches, past coaches, TV people uh, in a room and they went through the rule book rule by rule. Mm. And the idea was, how can we make it simpler? Now, I'm not saying that rugby's necessarily succeeded <laughs> because there are still some of the rules that you just go, what? i mean, the front row, nobody really knows who's involved <laughs> there. But anyway, um, that's another story. But I think hockey could do that. I think there are, there are certainly when you sit after a tournament or in the bar at the end of a day's uh, play and you talk to coaches, a lot of them have got great ideas For making some of the rules or the interpretation of the rules clearer for the fans. And I I think we've got too many rules that are left to interpretation for the umpires, which I think is unfair on umpires, especially and let's bear this in mind, these umpires are amateurs. Mm. They are not being paid. All Mm. they get is a Padilla. I would like to see umpires, a panel of professional umpires that are literally the best, say 12 or 15, male or female, that travel the world doing the top games. That's Mm. something I think needs to happen. Um, but I would like to see the umpires involved, players, ex-players, and broadcasters to sit and go through the rule book and go, do we really need this? What are we trying to say here? Can we get rid of it? Mm. And, or can we make it simpler? And mm. I think that until we do that, the game's always going to struggle.
0: It's a very interesting point. And I have to ask, are there any rules that immediately spring to mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the overhead is, is one and, <laughs> and the danger when it comes down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Terry Walsh has got, a, a, a. I think it's actually, I've thought about it a lot. And he says, you know, look, if it is deemed that there is danger where the ball comes down, then the free hit goes back to where the pass was thrown. So what it means is that the people throwing the pass from deep in their defence are probably going to think twice if, it, if they're, you know, losing a game or they're under pressure, that suddenly that free hit could come back down into their half. Mm. And I think that would eliminate the danger straight away Mm. or it would make people more responsible before throwing those passes.
0: Mm. Interesting. That's about all we're going to cover today, Ashley. I, as I said, I could talk a lot more in depth about all these sorts of things, but maybe that's for over a beer another time. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, I very, very much appreciate it. Um, and your views are very welcome in my book always Ah, thanks
1: very much for your time I hope I haven't upset too many people (laughs) with my comments but uh, always up for a beer anyway
0: (laughs) not at all beautiful thanks Ashley big thank you to the production team of David Moore Tim Collier and Jimmy Stevens if you do like the help side please like subscribe interact we'd love to hear from you You can find us at The Help Side on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's it for now. We'll catch you on The Help Side next time.